My name is Mike. Uh, if we have not crossed paths before, give me a moment to uh, please introduce myself. I'm not one of the regular teaching pastors here. I'm a member, uh, like many or most of you. I've called Fellowship Bible Church home for about the last 16 years. Uh, I'm a recent addition to our elder team. And uh, I'm up here, because uh, from time to time, uh, both Rob and Lloyd will reach into the bullpen and uh, we'll look for someone else to come up so that they can enjoy a much-deserved weekend off. So uh, with the 4th of July weekend kind of falling in a funny part of the week uh, this last week, right in the middle, it looks like uh, this weekend is a time for either one or both of them to get a little bit of rest. So I hope they are enjoying that, and I am glad to be with you uh, this morning. I want to take just a moment to uh, wish all of you a happy, albeit belated, 4th of July. I've got my celebratory shirt on this morning. Um, I hope you took the time this last week to just pause for a moment and ponder what it is to be American, uh, to think a little bit about what this holiday stands for. Uh, I think so many of us move I don't know, quickly or efficiently, we all have such busy lives and we probably don't tap the brakes very well when we get a day off of work to think about what it is that we're remembering or what it is that we're celebrating when we recognize these holidays that are in our schedule. The 4th of July might mean something a little bit different to you than it does to me. And I wanna share with you just a few reflections on America if I could. Um, July 4th is a little different for me because I wasn't born here. I spent my first 24 years of life in Canada. I emigrated here uh, when I was uh, 25. And um, like probably many others around the world, I looked on America from a distance with a little bit of envy, with a little bit of longing. I saw the American experiment and I, I wanted to partake. I wanted to be a part of it. I saw what this country stood for. I saw the opportunities that were here and I was drawn to it. Uh, and so when the company that I worked for offered me an intercompany transfer visa to come down to the United States and work, uh, when that offer came across my desk, it was followed by a resounding, heck yeah. And quite frankly, as soon as the immigration paperwork could be processed, I was on a plane the next day. Could not wait um, to be in the United States. Now you might ask why. My friends, you're right here uh, in terms of your experience with America, but um, this is the land of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those were three of our ideals when we were formed. Uh, you think about liberty, the freedoms that you experience. I hope you realize that the freedoms that you get to partake of here are freedoms that are not offered many other places around the world. You get to drink richly from free choice and get to uh, enjoy um, just a wide range of freedoms and decision-making that are not open to other people. Um, the Statue of Liberty herself in New York Harbor, there's a plaque on her that says, give me your tired, give me your poor, your huddled masses who yearn to breathe free. She calls out to people who live in some of these many nations that don't have the freedoms that we experience. And additionally, you think about the pursuit of happiness. What does that mean? Well, we have a fairly level playing field here in America. Um, if you wanna be a doctor, go for it. You can be a doctor. If you wanna be a dentist, you can be a dentist. If you wanna be a congressman or congresswoman, you can, you can do that. If you wanna be a lawyer, God bless you, I hope there's not many of you, but you can be a lawyer in this country, okay? 
Now you have to realize that in other countries around the world, you were born onto a rung on the socioeconomic ladder. You were born here, you will marry here, and in your life, this is where you will stay. You do not have the ability to climb higher, but it's different here. In America, we don't guarantee you success, but we'll give you a shot. You have the opportunity in front of you, and it's up to you what you do with it. America is a level playing field. And my friends, that's why we've got so many people risking their lives to come over our borders to partake in this American experiment because so many other people do not have the opportunities that we have. You have to realize that no one, no one is sneaking over the border into Scotland to experience what they have. No, no one's trying to crash into the Ukraine illegally to partake of what the Ukrainians have. Or El Salvador, right? Uh, Argentina. I'm sure there's many other countries. And I'm not trying to belittle or speak down to these countries in any way. Please don't hear that. I'm just saying that even when America fails to live up to her ideals, this place is special. And you need to be thankful to God that you were born here to partake of what we have here in our country. Amen. This is a great place to call home. We are a nation formed under God. Uh, we are a nation that was founded with God's blessing, and we need to be grateful for that. Okay, well, America is a place where your dreams can come true. On that theme, I wanna segue a little bit uh, and talk a little bit about dreams coming true. How many of you remember the time that you were, I don't know, 16 years old, and you kind of had dreams for the future at that time? You said, man, when I get older, I want to become this. I want to have this. I want to experience this. How many of you remember some of the dreams you had when you were 16 years old? Perfect. Well, let me share with them some of, some of the things with me. What, did you, what were some of your dreams, some of the aspirations you had when you were 16? Broadway. But Broadway, that's a good one. What's another dream? Wedding planner. Wedding. Wedding planner? Okay, career for a wedding planner. What else? What was another dream you had when you were young? Travel. Travel. Where'd you want to travel to? Someplace warm. Someplace warm. Did you grow up in a cold state? Wisconsin. Wisconsin. <laughs> Nailed it. Thank you, Don. Okay, what are other dreams you had when you were younger? Experiences you wanted to have, places you wanted to go, careers you had envisioned. What's another one? Come on, don't be bashful. Yeah. Major League Baseball. Baseball, Professional athlete. All right. Anyone else? To be a wife and mom. You wanted to be a wife and a mom. Love it. Good. So we've all had different dreams. Some of our dreams were, I heard, career. Uh, Some of our dreams were for travel or for vacation. Some are for family. Some are for fortune. Right? All the dreams we have represent a future state that we long for. They represent something that we wanted to have in the days ahead. I remember being 16 years old. Uh, probably every young man in the room could re- can recall this as well. But man, I had posters on my walls of the cars I wanted to drive. Anyone else do that when you were younger? Okay. Did you have a Volkswagen on your wall? Okay. No. Lamborghini, okay? None of us had, oh, I can't wait to have a Volvo. Like, that was not the dream when you were 16, okay? That wasn't there. I did have dreams of cool vacations when I was younger. 
Okay, so I grew up in Canada. I grew up in a place called Calgary, which is a beautiful city. It's about an hour away from the Rocky Mountains. But we vacationed in a place called Saskatchewan. Now, that means nothing to 95% of you, but let me explain Saskatchewan, okay? Besides noteworthy mosquitoes, Saskatchewan can be understood as like a flatter, drier version of rural Nebraska, okay? Now, I'm sure that cows and pigs and corn stalks resonate with some. It did not resonate with me. And I could not wait to have like vacations in like Tahiti or, or cool exotic places that were awesome. Um, I just, I, my dad was a farmer. He grew up as a farmer. So I get that that was probably close to his heart. I'm not talking down on farmland at all. It just wasn't what I desired. It wasn't what I wanted. But if you think back with me, just wherever you're at, think about what you longed for, what you dreamed of when you were 16. And probably for all of us, we can agree that it represents some future state. If we're here, our dreams represent some kind of a trajectory up the ladder, okay? Now, as you, as you commence down the journey of life, you start to experience some of the fulfillment of these desires and wishes that you had for yourself. Put yourself now at 25 years old on the timeline. Okay, maybe you finished college or you finished grad school by now. You've probably got your first job, right? No matter what it is, it's better than what you're doing when you're 16 years old, making seven bucks an hour at Chick-fil-A uh, or delivering newspapers or just getting allowance from mom and dad. But at 25, you're going, okay, yeah, you know what? I'm making more money than I could even conceive of when I was 16 years old. My job is pretty cool. Things are going pretty good. How many of you at 16 would have looked at your rung on the ladder and said, "Woo! I've arrived. I'm right where I'm going to stay. How many of you are there? I want to call you out because if you're there, I need to talk to your parents because they probably want to in, in, inject some more dreams and more visions into your life at 25 because you'll become a, the kid who hasn't left home at 40, right? And so mom and dad are going to make sure we address that earlier than later, okay? But at 25, none of us are finished climbing the ladder. We all feel like we want to continue going further up the ladder in our lives, right? So now let's fast forward the clock. You meet somebody, you meet a beautiful girl or you meet the man of your dreams and you fall in love and you get married. Ah, longing for that. And then you take a cooler job, you take a better paying job that pays more money or has stock options or a 401k plan. Ah, journey up the ladder, right? After that, you start a family, you've got children, you begin to have kids in your family, you're climbing up the ladder and up the ladder, okay? And as you continue up this journey, you start to discover, okay, we're making more money. We've got the house in Williamson County. There's two cars in our driveway. You're feeling pretty good, right? Now, at 45 years of age, how many of you, and I don't know if you can relate to this or not, but how many of you at 45 years old are saying, all right, finish climbing. I've done all I need to do. I'm going to stay on this rung of the ladder for the rest of my life. How many of you at 45 feel like you're there? Nobody. Let me ask you a question. At 45, if you're making more money than you would have thought of when you were 16 and you've got comfortable things and a family and the realization of many of your desires, why are you not done climbing at 45? Why is that? What was that? You're never done. Why are you never done? There's still more to do. Yep. Other thoughts? Why else? Why are you not finished climbing? You're up here. By the world's standards, you're what? You're wealthy. 
You're a one percenter in the eyes of the world. And yet for some reason, even when we're here on the ladder, we still don't feel like we're done climbing. Some of us don't feel like we can stop climbing. Whether that be that there's now newly or reoriented goals and wants, whether it be that there's more we feel like we can attain, maybe there's a restlessness in your heart that says, you know, I don't feel satisfied. The good life, it's still up there. And so you keep climbing up and up and up, okay? We're gonna spend some time this morning talking about this uh, because we're gonna read from Mr. Solomon uh, that uh, he's, getting, he's given us some meditations in the book of Ecclesiastes, writing as a man who's got the vantage point from really the top rung of the ladder. And I don't know where you're at right now. I don't know your story. I don't know where you'd perceive yourself to be on this you know, socioeconomic ladder of success. I'm not sure if you feel like you're here, if you're here, if you feel like you're there. Probably what all of us have in common is that we feel like there's a need for us to continue climbing because there's something in us that says we're not finished yet. There's more to do, and there's something in you that's driving you further up the ladder. Um, I wanna take a moment to open up our Bibles to Ecclesiastes 6. Go ahead and uh, open your Bibles there if you haven't done so already. And we're gonna listen from a man who's uh, writing with a slightly different perspective than you and I. Now, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was preparing my message on Ecclesiastes, and my daughter, Amy, she's 12, she uh, came up to me, I was in my library at home, and she says, Dad, what are you doing? I said, I'm working on my message. I'm gonna be teaching at fellowship. She says, oh, cool, what are you teaching on? And I said, Ecclesiastes. She says, oh, great, life is miserable and then you die. <laughs> I'm like, oh. Now, she's 12, but she's at the age where she sits next to me in eight o'clock service, and it's interesting to hear what she's hearing in our church service. In all transparency, this probably hasn't felt like a pick-me-up book in our journey thus far through Ecclesiastes. For a guy who's accomplished so much in life, Solomon seems a little despairing in his perspective on his accomplishments, right? Vanity of vanities, all is futile, what? Under the sun, right? Solomon writes, futile under the sun, get this, 27 times in the book, I counted. Here's a guy who's writing from the perspective up here. He's got top of the rung status in multiple areas of his life. And how does he feel about his life? How, what's the view from the top like? Vanity of vanities, all is meaningless. Chasing after the wind, all is futile under the sun. Well, it's a strange book, to be sure. One, I've enjoyed the process of going through, but we've got to look at this through the lens of what's he trying to communicate to us, okay? Now, we have to agree, I hope you're with me on this, that Solomon literally is writing from the top rung of the ladder. He has achieved the pinnacle of success in multiple areas of his life, okay? He is the king of Israel, so there's no one more powerful than him. He has more political strength. He has more ability to get done whatever he wants done than anyone else. Top of the rung in power. He's also top of the rung in wealth. He was uncommonly wealthy. He's considered the wealthiest man of the Old Testament, okay? He had as much dollar bills as he could pack into his jeans as anyone that has existed, okay? Money, not a problem from Solomon. He had as much as he could have wanted, okay? Thirdly, he asked God to provide him with something. When God said, what can I do for you as the king of Israel, he made a request to God. What did he ask for? Wisdom. 
and he was considered the wisest man in the land. In fact, people traveled from all over just to hear Solomon speak. His intellect was widely known throughout the entire region. So Solomon is top of the ladder smart, top of the ladder rich, top of the ladder powerful. And there's one other area I would say as well, okay? I would suggest that Solomon was also top of the ladder in terms of his experiences in pleasure just in general. Okay, and I'm not saying, oh, he had 700 wives, we're talking about that. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 2.10, he says, I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. If he wanted to experience a pleasure uh, or some kind of experience, he did it. He had the means and the ability to find it fulfilled. So he threw himself at experiencing pleasure, top of the rung, top rung of the ladder in all these areas. And yet, we still find him expressing this despair in his experience of life, okay? Now, a, a caution uh, this morning. Uh, we as Fellowship Bible Church, we love expository preaching. We love going kind of line by line, sometimes word by word through the text to really dig into what everything means. Expository preaching means that you've gotta be able to address the hard stuff and not miss the things that are difficult. As I was looking at this text, I felt like there was a concept within the text that I wanted to make sure that I hit head on, but in the light of time, I won't be able to exposit the entire text well. So I'm gonna navigate us through about the first five verses, and then I'm gonna try to sort of speak topically on the rest of our time together to really feel like I can drive home what Solomon is trying to say, okay? Uh, I say that because if you're the kind of person who loves to dig into the Hebrew, who loves to look into the original language and say, man, I wanna find out where that word is found throughout the Old Testament. Sorry, this morning's just not gonna be your day, okay? I'm gonna address this more topically, and I'm hoping that, that if nothing else, that'll serve as a good commercial break for us today um, to be able to drive home what I'm trying to uh, communicate. Okay, chapter six, verse one, you ready? Solomon says this, I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. Underline that. And strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. Now Solomon is not just saying, ha, I didn't find any fun in this. He seems to be suggesting that God actually withheld joy from him in his experience of these things. Verse three, he goes on to say that a man may have a hundred children. He may live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity, there's that idea again, and he does not receive a proper burial, then he says, and I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Well, a little context on this. In the Eastern mindset, uh, long life, Big families and material abundance, these were all seen as uh, blessings, signs of blessing from God, okay? And I can relate to how, you know, a long life would feel like it's a blessing from God and how, you know, a material abundance would feel like it's a blessing of God. Uh, but I gotta tell you, when he says a man may have a hundred children, a hundred direct descendants, I get that that was a possibility with Solomon, but I just don't relate that to blessing personally. Um, <laughs> 
Maybe I've seen too many TV shows on these reality TV networks of quintuplets or drowning in octuplets or whatever these shows are called, right? Where mom and dad are like just clinging to sanity on these shows. I have a hard time envisioning a hundred direct sentences being uh, a blessing. I love my kids. Do not hear me wrong on this. But man, that sounds like a lot of birthday parties. Um, and uh, I know how much joy my wife takes in creating really cool, meaningful birthday parties. She spends weeks preparing for each of our kids hundred she'd be fit to be tied. Okay, Solomon again goes back to this idea. He says, even in verse three, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity, there's the idea that he can't seem to enjoy what he's got. And he relates it uh, to a stillborn child. He says a, a, a stillborn or a miscarried child, he said, is better off than he. Wow. Well, let me unpack that, but let's go to verse four and five first, and then I'll take some time to drill into that analogy. He says of the stillborn child or the miscarried child, he says, it comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest. Underline that, that's key, than does man. Now, when Rob Sweet handed me Ecclesiastes 6 and says, okay, you get to teach this to fellowship on Sunday, he said, Neener, Neener, you get to deal with the miscarriage text. I said, thank you very much, Mr. Sweet. To, to, to describe a, a miscarried child uh, or a stillborn birth uh, as being in a better position than him, that's kind of a cold analogy. Uh, I actually don't prefer it, but I think I know what Solomon's trying to say when he makes this point. Um, a miscarried child, a child who has never seen the light of day, they have never experienced unfulfilled longing. Uh, an unborn child has never worked hard to accomplish something, seen its realization, but then realized that it's not as fulfilling or as full of satisfaction as you had anticipated. They don't open themselves up to the disappointments of life. Now, I don't think Solomon is trying to diminish the tragedy of a miscarriage. My wife and I have experienced that. We've walked that road. If you've been there, I hope you're not offended by Solomon's analogy. I know what that pain is like. I've walked that, I've, I've been there. But rather than diminish the pain of a miscarriage or a stillbirth, Solomon is just asking us to recognize the tragedy of a life that is lived without contentment, of a life that is lived without this inner rest that it seems like he is searching for. Now, Whenever you prepare to teach a text in the Bible, even when you're just doing a devotional read, you always wanna look at what the biblical author is saying and you wanna kinda of look at yourself and just sort of hold up a mirror to yourself. And I gotta tell you, I did a little bit of reflecting when I was reading Ecclesiastes 6 because you know, I look on my, on my personal life and I feel like uh, my wife and I, we've accomplished a, a lot of the things that we actually set out to do when we got married. I've owned and run a couple of businesses. I've, I've run them, grown them, sold them. Uh, I now coach entrepreneurs. I've got a beautiful house in Williamson County. I do have two cars in my garage. I do have a 401k. Man, I'm, I'm a blessed man. I know I started down here. I don't know where I am on here, but I'm way up from where I started. And at 44 years old today, I was telling my wife, Lynn, despite how far we've come in terms of where we wanted to be up the ladder, I, I told her, I said, Lynn, I am more discontent now than I was when I was 30 when I was down here. And I said, I look at the things we've checked off the list of career aspirations, and I'm like, it shouldn't be this way. I should be the happiest guy. 
And it was, I started to resonate a little bit with Solomon's message. I can't even see Solomon from my position on the ladder, but I'm already relating a little bit to where he is in his discontent. And I don't know if you can too. And I would love just for you, just in, in this moment as we're talking about this, can you survey your own life for me right now? Think about where you're at on the ladder and think about your level of deep inner contentment in your life. How many of you right now, if you're being totally honest with me, would say that despite God's blessings in your life, would say that you struggle with some degree of discontent in your life? Yeah, most of us. So I think Solomon is suggesting that this is actually a universal condition. I think an argument could be made that it actually gets worse the further you get up the ladder. I like the picture of this ladder because every step gets narrower and narrower and that, that could probably be taken a few different ways. But I wanna, I wanna dive into this because you know, we have this idea, we have this um, suggestion in our minds that the further up this thing we go, the more content we'll have. I'll be more content here than I was there. I'll be more content here than I was there. But yet we look up the ladder to guys like Solomon and he seems to be shouting down to us, guys, it's not any better up here. Or you hear stories in the news of celebrities who are up there that are committing suicide. You're going, what? You should be the happiest guys on the earth. What gives? I think they're trying to communicate a truth to us that's embedded in this text, okay? Now, I wanna deviate from the Bible just for a second and I wanna read a poem to you that I came across when I was in seminary, okay? Uh, and I came across a, uh, a poet, his name is George Herbert. Uh, he lived in the 1600s, he died in 1633. I don't know when this poem was written that I'm gonna read to you, but I want you to absorb it uh, because George Herbert was a metaphysical poet and some of the things that he has written have really resonated with me. And I think that's saying a lot because I'm not a highly educated dude. I've got a phys ed degree, okay? So me and poetry, we've never really gotten along, okay? But when I read this, it struck me. And so I think that there's meat here that might be found for you too. Go ahead and put up the first stanza of the poem if you could. This is called The Pulley, okay? George Herbert says, when God at first made man having a glass of blessings standing by. Let us, said he, pour on him all we can. Let the world's riches, which dispersed lie, contract into a span. So God has all these blessings and he's about to give them to mankind. So strength first made a way, then beauty followed, then wisdom, honor, and pleasure. When almost all was out, God made a stay, he paused, perceiving that, of all, that, that alone of all his treasure, rest in the bottom lay. Pause for a moment. He's given mankind all these blessings, wisdom, beauty, honor, pleasure, but he's got one gift in here that he hasn't given mankind, the gift of rest. For if I should, said he, bestow this jewel also on my creature, he would adore my gifts instead of me and rest in nature, not the God of nature, so both should losers be. Yet, let him keep the rest, let him keep all these gifts I've given him, but let him keep them with repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary, that at least if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast." Isn't that amazing? God has given mankind all these gifts, all these great things for us to experience, but he's withheld one thing from the human experience. What is that? 
rest. And I love this third stanza. If I should give him this last thing, if I should give him rest, he would adore my gifts instead of me. And then he would rest in nature, not the God of nature, so both should losers be to both of our detriment. I think that's fantastic. God has given us many, many gifts, but he's withheld one key one that we are all conscious of that we are lacking in our experience of life. None of us have deep inner rest. Well, there are first and second things in life, my friends. God offers us the greatest pleasure of all. What is it? Himself. God offers us himself as our greatest pleasure, but he also offers us secondary pleasures, secondary experiences, the gifts that we have in this life, the things that Solomon has access to, the things that we have access to, right? Secondary pleasures. But we're in danger of mistaking secondary pleasures for primary pleasure in our life. Okay? The greatest gift that we can experience is God himself. Psalm 1611 says, you have made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Okay? Guys, there are no mutabilities in God. He is perfect. Our experience of him is full and rich and filling, but all the gifts he gives are full of mutabilities. They're the kinds of things that rocks and that moth and rust destroy and that thieves break in and steal. All the gifts of this world are kind of broken. They play a little bit like LP records that have scratches in them. They don't work quite right, right? And so when we engage in these secondary pleasures and we find disappointment in them, it's to suggest to us that maybe these things weren't, in, weren't meant to ultimately satisfy us, okay? Now, I want you to do me a favor. I'm gonna have you turn back a couple chapters in Ecclesiastes. As we've gone through our study, I just wanna have you underline or highlight two verses that we've already passed that I feel are instructive or illuminative in us understanding this text more fully. Go with me first to Ecclesiastes 2.25. Ecclesiastes 2, chapter 25. And if you got your pen, go ahead and underline it. It says, who can eat or enjoy life without him? Who can eat or enjoy life without him? Give me him and I can enjoy some of these other, some of these secondary pleasures. But without him, all these other things are meaningless and empty and hollow, okay? We gotta be cautious that in our fallen nature, sometimes we accept these secondary pleasures as substitutes for the highest pleasure, okay? Did God give us these secondary pleasures to tease us or to disappoint us intentionally? No, no, love is a gift from God. Beauty is a gift from God. Wisdom is a gift from God. These things were given for him and intended for us to rightly enjoy them, but they are secondary pleasures, my friend. They are only appetizers to suggest the real thing. They're only a taste of what is to come for us. Okay, one other verse I wanna have you underline. Skip forward one chapter in Ecclesiastes. Go to chapter three and go to the second half of verse 11. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this. I think this is the key to the book, by the way. It says, he has set eternity in the hearts of men. Solomon says, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Think of that for just a moment. We are eternal beings. We are men and women that are made in his image and in his likeness, and we are destined for eternity. Guys, this world that we're experiencing 
It's a temporary stop on the journey. This is not our home. We shouldn't be surprised that it doesn't feel real comfortable most times. Okay? Mankind is kind of like an amphibian. We're designed for another world, but we can exist in the place in which we find ourselves. We've got kind of an amphibious nature, right? But remember, this world is not our ultimate destination, right? And so we shouldn't be surprised when the things of this world don't ultimately satisfy us. Now, one of my favorite authors, I actually my favorite author of all time. It's a guy named C.S. Lewis. I encountered this Oxford scholar when I was in seminary, and I love some of his reflections on life. Lewis, like us, had discovered that he experienced a significant amount of discontent in his life, and it sort of surprised him because he says every desire that we have in our life has a corresponding satisfaction. All of our natural desires have a satisfaction that's designed for them. In fact, how do we rightly know our desires except by their satisfaction, okay? So, for example, we've all experienced what it is to be thirsty, right? If you've been thirsty after a long day or exercise or heat or whatever, you grab a tall glass of water or perhaps two, you drink it, and you're no longer thirsty. The water corresponds to the desire, right? Same thing with hunger. We've known what it is to experience hunger. We eat a full meal, we're no, lo no longer hungry. The satisfaction has resolved the desire, so they are clearly correlated. Good so far? We've all know what it is to be lonely. If, you've, if you felt lonely, you know what it is to seek out company or companionship, and that resolves that desire as well. We are born, and throughout our lives, we experience a sexual drive. Well, there is sex. All of our natural desires have a correlated or a corresponding satisfaction. But Lewis found out in his life that there was a deep desire within him that none of the experiences in this world satisfied. And the philosopher in him traced this back and said, aha, there's a problem here. If every desire has a corresponding satisfaction and I can't figure out how to fulfill this desire, what does that mean? And he wrote this and it's found in mere Christianity. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't mean the universe is a fraud. Probably the earthly pleasures were never made to satisfy them, but merely to arouse them, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other hand, here's the key, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I love this. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. I love that. That's great perspective in this time. My friends, our true country, which we shall not find until after death, is heaven. And there is only one way to get there. And that is through Jesus Christ, God's son. My friends, Jesus and the gifts that he offers you are the ultimate fulfillment to your deepest longings and desires of your soul. He is the joy of man's desiring and he is the only mediator between God and man that will grant you access to heaven. In your Bibles, 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is one God and there is one mediator between man and God, the man Jesus Christ. He is the only satisfaction that will fill our ultimate longings in our life. Guys, even as believers, this world is still broken. All the good things we experience in this world, they still don't work quite right, 
right? Uh, love can, in a broken world, in a sinful world, can distill into lust, and food can uh, spiral into gluttony. So even the gifts of this world, they're broken, right? Uh, but at the end of the day, we will find our ultimate longings deeply fulfilled when we're standing in the presence of Christ, and we find ourselves enjoying the relationship with him fully face-to-face for which we were intended. And Lord, we wait for that day with anticipation. Now, I wanna invite the ushers to come forward. We're gonna end our time together today with uh, the Lord's table. We're gonna engage in communion. Uh, All of you in this room who are in Christ, I invite you to participate in this. For those of you who have not seen this before or are not familiar with what communion is, this is a, a, a tradition of sorts. This is an opportunity where we as believers in Christ partake in a recognition of the price that Christ has paid on our behalf. When Jesus uh, gave his life for us, his body was broken, and so we we take a piece of bread, by the way, gluten-free for the 10% of you in the room for whom that matters. Do not be afraid of taking the bread. And his blood was poured out. His blood was spilled on our behalf. And it is his blood, his shed blood, that grants us a means to salvation. So go ahead and come forth, guys, and go ahead and distribute the elements. Go ahead and do that. Um, as we are partaking of communion, I want you to, when you get the elements, just to go ahead and hold them. We'll take them together, right? Hold on to the bread and hold on to the cup until we've all been served, okay? Um, but as we're, as we're passing these out, I want to remind you that Paul invited us in 1 Corinthians 11, he invited us to examine our lives whenever we are at the Lord's table. He asked us to reflect on where we were at and to examine ourselves as we approach the Lord's table with a certain element of reverence. Because guys, Jesus Christ, before he was born into Bethlehem, he himself was at the very top rung of the ladder. Jesus Christ was in the presence of God the Father receiving worship from the angels. And what did he do? You guys, Jesus was at the very top rung of the ladder and he saw us in our state separated from God and Jesus intentionally climbed down from his high spot and he brought himself low so that he could be a means for us. He came to love us. He came to serve us. He came to be a provision for us because there was things that we could not do for ourselves. He realized that we were in a uh, state of separation between God and ourselves. And so he came down to be a means to satisfy that gap. And so as we look at Jesus and his example, and as we thank Jesus for the gift that he's offered to us, I want us to be mindful that as Jesus lowered himself on the ladder, that we want to look to him as an example and consider potentially lowering ourselves on the ladder as well in our own lives. You will not be more content the further you climb this thing. In fact, I could make an argument that you might be more content if you took a step down. And I know Rob last week spoke at the end of his message about the differences between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. One receives and does not give out, and one receives and gives out. My friends, we are to be a blessing to others. We ourselves are to be a provision to others in the way that we are able to. And I'm so grateful that at Fellowship, we've brought back our needs board. We've brought back our our prayers and requests board that we did during 100 days of prayer and worship back in the fall. When you exit the church today, stop by the needs board. It's in the atrium and see if there might be a need from one of your brothers or sisters within the walls of Fellowship that has something that they need to get help with and see if you might be able to be a provision for them. Okay, my friends, go ahead and take the bread. Lord, this is a symbol of your body that was broken for us. 
This is a symbol of the life that you laid down on our behalf. It was broken for us. And Lord, we give you thanks for that choice. Lord, go ahead and take the bread. Lord, the cup in our hands is a symbol of your blood. Lord, this is the price that you paid on Calvary's cross so that we could attain salvation. You did not have to do this, Lord, but you chose to. And your spilled blood spanned the gap between sinful man and a heavenly God. Lord, your perfection was appointed to us in this glorious exchange on the cross. And we thank you for this now. We're grateful, Lord, that you chose the cross. Go ahead and take the cup. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. I'm grateful for the words of Solomon. And Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we get to gather here and learn about you. Lord, as our worship team sends us off, I pray that we'd be convicted to look rightly at our uh, position in life. Lord, help us to be mindful, not of how we can climb higher, but how we can serve others by even climbing lower. Jesus, you are our full abundance. Help us to not be anxious about that which we have or do not have. Help us to be grateful with what you have given us, Lord, for that is all that matters. In your wonderful name we pray, amen.